0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 359, Play Autocrat Games, Win Autocrat Prizes. This show is free and independent due to listener support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, there's a new shop talk on the members' feed, where we talk about different types of power, and we also talk about evidence that the court during this period was full of secret sh** talk. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Peter, Paul, and Thomas for signing up already. It's always nice to have the support of the apostles. In 1040, England once again had a new king. But the people were finding Harthacnut a tough pill to swallow. It had been a bad sign that when Harthacnut arrived... One of the very first things he did was mutilate and desecrate King Harold Harefoot's body. I mean, that's a risky move to make even when dealing with an unpopular king. But King Harold Harefoot had enjoyed a reasonable amount of popularity. He had a lot of initial support. He'd only reigned for about five years, and he hadn't done all that much during that time, which meant he hadn't really got around to offending anyone either. So when Harthacnut arrived there's a very good chance that the English looked upon Harold Harefoot fondly, or at least benignly. And there are many ways to make friends, but desecrating a popular corpse isn't one of them. And then Harthacnut went one step further. Even though the English had invited him to rule, he still demanded that they pay a tribute as if they had been conquered. A huge tribute. Which, again, is a strange strategy for making pals. Then, Harthacnut went on to snub the inner circle of the English upper nobility and put a good chunk of them on trial for following the previous king's orders. And he seems to have done it without even consulting the Witan. He even stripped a bishop of his bishopric, apparently again without consulting the church. And beyond the rank antagonistic cruelty of these moves, there's also the fact that King Harthacnut was imposing these dictates in a particularly foreign way. He wasn't asking for advice or working with his upper nobles to develop policy. Instead, Hartheknut was ruling in a distinctly Scandinavian style. He just made declarations and insisted that they happen. He was ruling as an autocrat. And that was not the usual style of English kings. English kings, even Athelred for all his flaws, had a council Now, granted, Athelred had a terrible council, but it was a council. And that meant that even the reign of Athelred preserved the English tradition of the Witan, where the king was selected by and ruled through the highest-ranked noblemen. But this new king, Harthacnut, was basically ruling by fiat. And even worse, while Harthacnut shunned one of the better aspects of Athelred unread, he was embracing many of the worst. King Harthacnut was proving himself to be vicious and punitive. And he was also greedy. That tribute, he demanded, was ridiculous. Everyone knew it. And many of the members of the English nobility actually refused to pay it. And if Harthacnut was a wise man, he would have seen that as a red flag. That he pushed the people too far. But he was not a wise man. And his power was being challenged. So, the king sent out his personal guard his huskarls. And he sent them to all the shires of England with instructions to collect the tribute that he demanded. And they could do it by force if necessary. It didn't have the intended effect. And on May the 4th of 1041, an alliance of rebels was formed. The king's huskarls rode out to Worcester to collect the tribute. And we're not told how they went about collecting that tribute, nor the actions they took upon the population. But we can guess. They represented an insecure ruler, and they were sanctioned to inflict violence. And their job was to separate people from their ability to care for themselves. Because don't get distracted by the euphemism of tribute. What the king was demanding here were the very crops and livestock that the people of Worcester depended on to feed themselves and their children. So we can assume that there was resistance. And that the Huscarls responded as they were trained to do with violence. We aren't told if they killed anyone. Our sources don't record the deaths of common folk, but I would be very surprised if some of the locals weren't injured and killed when they refused to pay the king's tribute. And normally, that would be the end of it. Typically, when the state inflicts violence, the public flees, which is why in many cases, violence is the strategy that underpins a ruler's power. But sometimes things go differently. Sometimes the public doesn't flee. And that's a very dangerous moment for the state because there are almost always more members of the public than there are soldiers and officers. And that was the case in Worcester. And when the people of Worcester fought back, the King's Huscarls were overwhelmed, and they fled. Two of the Huscarls, they were named Feeder and Thurstan, ran to the nearby abbey, presumably hoping that the holy building would provide refuge, either as a defensible position or as a religious sanctuary. But the enraged people of Worcester rushed the building. Feeder and Thurstan retreated upwards into the abbey tower, climbing into one of the upper chambers, desperately trying to hide from the citizens. But they were found, and no fancy title of huscarl would save them now. The citizens had enough, and they cut Feeder and Thurstan down where they stood. When word of this reached the king, he was enraged. He had wanted to send a message to end the challenges to his authority, and to gain the money he felt he was owed. And instead, the heart of the Midlands was in open rebellion, and they had killed two of his officers. The king wanted a response to this, a brutal one. But interestingly, an entire summer and fall passed before he was able to mobilize one. It wasn't until November, after fully six months had passed, that the king finally managed to get troops into the field. Ready to carry out his orders. And considering that our record has a habit of concealing infighting and getting really quiet when things are going badly, the silence here is suggestive. Personally, I suspect Earl Leofric of Mercia and Archbishop Elfrich of York, as well as their allies, were the cause of this delay. Worcester was in the heart of Leofric's territory, and he had been the chief proponent of the rise of King Harold Harefoot, Harthacnut's predecessor and more recently, the victim of corpse desecration. So if you were going to have a central figure of opposition to Harthacnut, you have to think it would have been Leofric. And as for Archbishop Elfrich, well, before he was the Archbishop of York, he was the Bishop of Worcester. And now, thanks to Harthacnut stripping the bishopric from Leffing in a fit of pique, Elfrich was once again in his old post at Worcester. He was now their bishop, governing the very abbey where Feeder and Thurstan had met their bloody end. These people were his flock. So I have to imagine that Leofric and Elfrich, and whatever political allies they had, were likely working really hard to fend off the king's anger. And this very well could have accounted for the six-month delay in a royal response. It probably also didn't help that King Harthacnut was sick, and getting sicker. It's very possible that he was waiting until he felt well enough to march out himself. But if this was the case, that day never came. When the move was made in November, it was delegated. The king stayed home. Instead, Earl Thorold of Middlesex, Earl Godwin of Wessex, Earl Seward of Northumbria, Earl Bonny of Hereford, Hrani of the Magansata, Earl Leofrich of Mercia, and all the other English earls were ordered to gather their troops and join the king's army which was made up of a large body of troops and almost all of his huscarls. Then they were to march on Worcester. Their orders were simple. They were to kill every last person in Worcester. Man, woman, child. Once everyone was dead, they were ordered to plunder the province and burn it all to the ground. It was a brutal and unjust order. And it seems that at least some of the ruling classes knew it. Because the people of Worcestershire were warned of the king's plan. And the people of the city, as well as the people who lived in the surrounding shire, fled their homes and took refuge on a small island in the middle of the Severn. At the time, it was known as Bavaria. And that island is still there, by the way. And at its current dimensions, it's only about 200 feet by 400 feet. Just under a couple acres. And if the island was the same size back then, it must have been really cramped. But it was also surrounded by about 100 feet of water on all sides. So it would have to do. Once there, the peasants did their best to fortify the island and stock it with provisions and prepare for the assault that was coming their way. And then they waited. On November 12th of 1041, the king's army arrived in Worcestershire. And they began burning and plundering their way through the land. And what few people they found, they killed. Now remember, these were the king's own subjects. They were also some of the nobles' own subjects. They had made oaths to protect these people. And part of the concept of divine right was that they were given this task by God himself. But funnily enough, oaths and the belief of a divine purpose never seemed to stop things like this. And so the king's army slaughtered and burned their way to the Severn where they found that little island of refugees and the people prepared to defend themselves. Now these were just peasants, merchants, and assorted common folk. They weren't professional soldiers, but they did have an island and it was fortified, at least what they were able to do. And they also knew that if their defense failed, everyone there would die. So for four days, King Harthacnut's army attempted to break through the defensive lines and kill the people who were taking shelter on the island. And for four days, they failed. On the fifth day, Harthacnut's army gave up. Apparently, they figured they'd just let the peasants have their stupid island. And besides, much of Worcester and the surrounding shire had been burned and plundered by this point. It was right on the edge of winter. So they'd inflicted an enormous amount of suffering and seized a ton of booty, which meant that many who were sitting on the island right now weren't going to see spring as it was. So, hoping that that would satisfy the king's wrath, the leaders of the army sued for peace. Terms were reached, and the people of Worcestershire were allowed to return to their homes. What was left of them. And the army marched back to the king loaded down with the peasant's winter stores of food and anything else of value they'd ever owned. Seeing this, the king, for his part, was mostly satisfied. People lost their homes, some people were killed, plenty of them would still starve, and everyone was miserable. Overall, it was a success. But there hadn't been as much killing as had been originally planned. And all of that was due to someone warning the people of the attack. And interestingly... When we're told that the people received word of the coming attack and they fled to their island, we're also told specifically that Bishop Elfridge was governing Worcester. And then shortly after the ravaging of Worcester, the king stripped Elfridge of his bishopric and gave it back to Bishop Liffing, who likely had been working hard to get back in the king's good graces, while I'm pretty sure Elfridge had been trying to keep Worcester from becoming a mass grave. Also tucked away in manuscript D of the chronicle, there's a short mention that Elfridge was also stripped of the Archbishopric of York, and that title was given to the Bishop of Durham. So my guess is that the king had some fairly specific suspicions of who warned the people of Worcester, and he was still enacting vengeance against him. But the king's wrath didn't stop there. When I gave that long list of earls who marched on Worcester, you might have noticed that someone was missing. Earl Edwulf of Bambura, the son of mighty Uhtred the Bold. Now, you might remember the Northumbrian blood feud that had been raging during this period, where a cascading list of sons were avenging their father's murders, all the way down to an original betrayal that was orchestrated by none other than Edric Strayona himself. Well, the line of Uhtred had been deep in that mess, and Edwulf's father and brother had both been killed by this point in the blood feud. And so... Upon taking the earldom, Aedwolf, son of Uhtred, decided to test out a new strategy. He wouldn't kill anyone in revenge. And by 1041, this scheme to prolong his lifespan had been working out pretty well. The only problem was that he had recently somehow offended the king. And given that he didn't appear in the list of earls who marched on Worcester, and given how independent Bambera tended to be, I can make a guess at what Aidwolf did to anger the king. And a pissed-off king can have an enormous impact on your life expectancy. So a messenger was sent out to King Harthacnut, asking that he grant Aidwolf safe passage so he might reconcile with the crown. And King Harthacnut granted the request. So Earl Aidwolf rode south to meet with the king and make his amends. And probably while traveling through York, Earl Aidwolf was met by his southern neighbor, Earl Seward of York. Seward was there at the king's request. It turned out that when Harthacnut granted Aidwolf safe passage, he hadn't really meant it. The king wanted him dead. And if Seward killed him, then the king promised to make him the Earl of all of Northumbria. So Seward killed Aidwolf's son of Utred. And in doing so, he became the new Earl of Northumbria and the king became an oath breaker. Not exactly the sort of thing you want attached to your name when you're trying to win hearts and minds. And it's this precise series of events that might have led to what happened next. We're told that, quote, Edward, son of Athelred, the late king of England, came over from Normandy, where he'd been in exile for many years, and being honorably received by his brother, King Harthacnut, remained at his court, end quote. Now, there's no way that Edward would have come over uninvited, especially after what happened to his brother. And the only invitation that he likely would have responded to would have come from the king himself, his own half-brother. So King Harthacnut was most likely the person who invited Edward over. And that's really interesting, because why would he do this? And whose idea was it? Well, William of Poitiers argues that this was the plea of a sickly king. And faced with his own mortality and wanting to make sure that the throne stayed within the family, he reached out to his brother Edward to make him his heir. But I wonder if it was really that cut and dry. For example, the praise of Queen Emma offers an alternative story. It states that Harthacnut was just trying to be a good brother. That in fact, this visit had absolutely nothing to do with succession or rule or even governance. And actually, when the praise mentions Edward's coming, it goes to great pains to make it very clear that Harthacnut had a far better claim on the throne than Edward. Because, and the praise of Queen Emma really can't stress this enough, f*** Edward. Emma really, really did not like her eldest son. And that is significant when you consider that we have several records that indicate that Harthacnut wasn't reigning alone. And that his mother, Queen Emma, was quite involved And was likely making many of the decisions along with him and to be honest that isn't too surprising since at this point the king's health was in decline and it was quite clear that he was hostile to much if not all of the english nobility so his mother might have been the only person he trusted who also understood how england worked and that makes things really complicated when you consider that there are rumors that emma was so hostile to edward that if harthacanute should die she wanted Harthacnut's rival, King Magnus of Norway, to rule England rather than Edward. Like I said, Emma did not like Edward. But her presence in court was also a double-edged sword for Harthacnut. Because it wasn't all that long ago that the English nobility drove Queen Emma into exile. She wasn't exactly popular. Even Godwin, who was ostensibly the most powerful figure in English politics, had turned against her. And now with King Harthacnut's series of retributive acts, he wasn't popular either. The accounts speak of how even the people who previously supported him were now growing to hate him. And making Magnus the heir to the English throne wasn't likely to improve that situation. So it's possible that inviting Edward to England might've been an effort to undercut Emma's plans of installing Magnus on the English throne. And that becomes a lot more interesting when you consider who it might have been trying to undercut this plan. You see, it was also probably becoming very clear to King Harthacnut that he had really overplayed his hand here, and he actually did need the support of some of the nobles, and in particular, his most powerful noble, Earl Godwin of Wessex. If anyone was working to convince the king to invite Edward to court, I have to imagine it was Godwin. Because on a dynastic level, Edward actually made a lot of sense. Even though Edward was inexperienced, both as a general and as a politician, and he had no lands of his own, and he had a boatload of debts to various Norman nobles, the fact was, he was a son of a king of England. And that meant he had a better claim to the throne than Harthacnut's rival, King Magnus of Norway, who really only had a claim if you count that tontine that they entered into. And even if Harthacnut wasn't concerned with dying, Edward still had a lot to offer him, First of all, considering the political mess that Harthacnut was in, thanks to his mother's earlier machinations and his own ham-fisted ruthlessness, he might have wanted to put a little shine on his reign by associating himself with an atheling that didn't have as much baggage as he did. Furthermore, Denmark still needed his attention. He wasn't just the king of England, he was also the king of Denmark, and Magnus remained a threat. So if Harthacnut wasn't concerned about his health, and he was making plans to leave england which he probably needed to do he would have to leave someone in charge while he was away and edward was family unlike the nobles that hartha canute clearly didn't trust and he was also an atheling which the english people would have appreciated so personally i suspect that hartha canute was probably intending his half-brother who was likely a lot more popular than he or emma to govern england And that Godwin was arguing in favor of this because by having Edward on the ground and ready to be consecrated at a moment's notice, they might be able to avoid the clusterfuck of Queen Emma trying to get King Magnus on the throne of England, just to stick it to her eldest son. And I'm guessing that Harthacnut was likely inclined to at least listen to Godwin on this, thanks to how politically unpopular he was, and how the recent rebellion in the Midlands was making it very clear that he needed to start making friends with the English ruling class. But honestly, the only thing we can be absolutely sure of here is that if there was such a thing as therapy in the 11th century, poor Edward would have needed it. Either way, though, as the year closed out, King Harthacnut was joined in court by his older half-brother, Edward. And that was probably a good thing, because that cough wasn't getting any better. In fact, he was looking downright awful. Pale, clammy, just awful. We aren't told specifically what he had, but it's generally thought that he was stricken with tuberculosis. However, life goes on. He still had things he was required to do. You don't get to stop being king just because you're sick. And the records indicate that he stayed busy. He gifted lands to various English religious institutions, including Ramsey Abbey and the Bishop of Winchester. And this was potentially in an effort to shore up his political flank, following all the missteps that he'd made in the previous couple years. Or perhaps it was an effort to make friends with God, which might have been a good idea considering his health and the fact that he was plotting murders, ordering shire-wide exterminations, and breaking sacred oaths. So all of that, along with dealing with Edward and trying to keep the Earls from rebelling against him, was probably keeping him fairly busy for the next few months. And soon, it was summer of 1042. And I bet the heat and the dry air felt good on his lungs. Because when the daughter of one of his influential Scandinavian courtiers, a woman named Githa, and Canute's old standard bearer, Tovi the Proud, announced they were getting married, the king made preparations to attend. So the king and his entourage journeyed to Lambeth in June. And there, a massive feast was held, funded by Githa's incredibly wealthy father. The Scandinavians, like the Anglo-Saxons, were a feasting culture, And the king himself was attending this wedding, so no expense was spared. It almost certainly lasted several days, during which the food, the entertainment, the merriment, and the alcohol would have flowed freely. So the king drank like you would expect a Danish king would. And you know how you can be when you aren't feeling well, but then you get a little bit tipsy and get a second wind? Well, that's what happened to King Harthacnut. So he drank some more, and he drank and he drank. He was having a great time, and John of Worcester describes the king as carousing, which isn't a word we tend to use all that often these days. But basically, it's like that drunken table at the pub where everyone's having a blast, talking way too loud, drinking way too much, and clearly planning on closing the place down before someone shouts, let's go to my place for shots. That is what the king was doing, and it was great. And at one point, Harthacnut was gathered with a group of people, which included the bride, Githa. He was laughing and chatting and drinking. And then he was crumpling and falling and seizing on the floor. People rushed to the king and tried to help him as his body was racked with spasms. But there was nothing they could do. Harthacnut clung to life for a little while longer. But following the seizures, he was either completely paralyzed or in a coma because the record describes the king as speechless. After lingering for a little bit, he died on June 8th of 1042, having reigned for only two years. And this has led some people to wonder if his death was the result of a plot. But it seems to me that it wasn't. Harthacnut was sick, and he was acting a damn fool by heavily drinking while ill. And even healthy people can sometimes have strokes from drinking too much. And while he was incredibly unpopular towards the end of his life, I'm inclined to think that this wasn't the result of foul play. It was just another example of a 20-something thinking he was invincible and discovering he wasn't. The king's body was then taken to Winchester so he could be buried next to his father. And as for the throne, well, that was a tricky situation. As we already discussed, it looks like Queen Emma supported the claim of King Magnus of Norway. And here's the thing with that. While supporting Magnus clearly didn't make her a very good mom, considering that she was yet again giving her eldest son the finger, Magnus did have a plausible claim to the throne thanks to that ridiculous tontine he had going with Harthacnut. Magnus was also an experienced and formidable king, while Edward's main life experience involved being a fancy charity case for Norman nobles. Magnus was also young, probably in his early 20s at the most which meant he'd probably rule for a long time and provide a certain degree of stability in the process. Provided, of course, he had better luck than the last handful of English kings. So if the rumors are true, which is a big if, the fact is, this wasn't as crazy as it might've seemed on first blush. Queen Emma may have had a point here. But on the other hand, Magnus, like Harthacnut and Canute, had no ties to England. And the English had just experienced several very hard years at the hands of a Scandinavian king. So I can't imagine there are many nobles who are excited about inviting over yet another foreigner who would probably just abuse them all over again. In fact, there's no indication that Magnus would have had any English support whatsoever if he came. And Edward, despite not being experienced, and despite being the son of Athelred Unread, was at least English. He was at least part of the House of Wessex. And furthermore, it's possible that he was also Harthacnut's chosen successor, given his presence in court and the way that Harthacnut welcomed him. And that too would have played a role in Edward's position on the line of succession. And finally, Earl Godwin of Wessex supported Edward's claim. Which might come as a surprise to you, considering that Godwin of Wessex was the guy who was involved in the death of Edward's brother. But the fact was, the last several years had been so rough that the pickings were now pretty slim. And against all odds, Edward was the best available candidate for the English throne. And so, as John of Worcester tells us, quote, chiefly by the exertions of Earl Godwin and Liffing, Bishop of Worcester, end quote, Edward was brought to London for his coronation. He would be the next king of England meanwhile in scandinavia king magnus of norway took denmark as part of consolidating his control magnus destroyed Jomsburg, headquarters of the joms vikings he also made swain the young handsome jarl from the line of forkbeard who'd been serving under Harthacnut and had a claim on the throne of denmark the jarl of jutland and that suggests that magnus like Harthacnut, probably recognized the threat that swain presented and was trying to make sure that things remained steady in Denmark. But he was looking beyond Denmark. What Magnus really wanted was a Scandinavian empire similar to that of Canute's, And he and Harthacnut had a deal. Magnus, not Edward, was Harthacnut's heir. That was the whole point of that Tontine. England should be his. And we know that he felt this way because at one point, magnus even wrote to edward warning that he planned to attack england with a combined norwegian danish army and quote he will then govern it who wins victory end quote he was preparing for war but england was formidable and preparing for an invasion takes time if you have any questions comments or concerns you can reach me at the british history podcast at gmail.com you can also join us on Reddit and any of our other communities by going to the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.